We're continuing our series on Revelation. This is week 43. The power of his word. As a follower of Jesus, would you say that you, as a general rule, believe in the power of God's word? And if you do, why do you believe in the power of God's word? See, that's a harder question. But if our primary desire and our main goal is to be faithful followers of Jesus who follow him wherever he goes, we better understand the power of God's word. As a Christian, if you spent any time at all in church, you likely have some sort of theological or theoretical knowledge of what it means, this phrase, power of God's word. You may be familiar with, the God, with God's word's own claims about itself and its power in creation. God said, let there be light. Power of salvation, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. The power of God's word in revelation for those who have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. It's got the power of conviction, telling us when our hearts need to be straightened or fixed. It's got the power of transformation to be able to change us into something that, is, that brings a smile to God's face. It also has the power of healing. The scripture says this about itself. It also has the power of prophecy. And yes, God's word even has the power of judgment. And when hearing about it, when you hear these things and you hear what God's word says about itself, you likely affirm it. Yes, amen. The power of God's word and creation and salvation and revelation and conviction and transformation and healing and judgment. Yes, amen, we believe it. However, have you in your own personal following of Jesus, truly embraced this power in a practical, pragmatic way? Is your belief in the power, this is important, is your belief in the power of God's word more theoretical than impactful? Does that make sense? If God's word is as powerful as it claims to be, shouldn't it have a significant, undeniable evident impact in our life every day? So the question is, how can we as followers of Jesus move beyond theoretical understanding to an inspirational, actionable understanding of the power of God's word? How can we somehow come up with a way to, to visualize the power of God's word in a way that will strengthen our understanding of it and our confidence in it? So today's passage offers powerful insights and inspiration, I believe, to help us visualize the full power of God's word. And with a fresh understanding and a new confidence in the power of God's word, I believe it can transform how we live in this fallen world. Now, as I get ready to read this passage, you know, one of the things I love most in movies is when there's this big epic battle brewing, right? You got both sides, you got the side you're cheering for. Hopefully it's the good side. Some of you might be cheering for the bad side. Shame on you. But whatever battle it is, you got the good side and you got the bad side. And, and they're all coming together. And the climax of emotion, anticipation, who's going to win? How's it going to, are my heroes going to die? <laughs> right? That's what we have here in Revelation chapter 19 in this lesson on the power of God's word. Let's read it together. You can click it forward for me, guys. There we go. There we go. 
Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Spoiler alert, that's Jesus, just in case you're wondering. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's us. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress. Remember the winepress. We've learned about that in our series. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the mighty men, horses and their riders, of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and his army. The beast was captured. Well, that's a little anticlimactic. <laughs> and, with the, and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from his mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Why do you think Jesus gave John this vision. How are we supposed to read this? This idea of this, what the scripture says in the passage, prepare yourselves for this great supper of God. And, and it's very clear what this great supper of God is. It's the corpses of the wicked. He's calling the birds of the air to come and feast on the corpses of the evil ones. How are we, what are we supposed to take from this? To us, it seems like this some very unnecessarily gory battlefield imagery, doesn't it? But John's readers would see it quite differently. John reader, John's readers would make a very different connection with two Old Testament prophecies that describe the actual return of Jesus. John's readers knew right away this idea of this battlefield slain with dead bodies, they knew right away these weren't some random gory images used for dramatic effect. They have a specific purpose. The first one is the idea of the king of kings on the white horse stained with blood. The first prophetic metaphor that he mentions is of a conquering king with clothes stained with the blood of his fallen enemies. It's taken directly from Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to break it down for you because what happens is the author asks the question, and then Jesus answers it in Isaiah. Here's the question. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? And Jesus answers, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Then he asks another question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? You remember treading in the winepress, the, the juice from the grapes. It's a symbol of blood. And Jesus answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. 
for the day of vengeance was in my heart. My year of redemption had come. This is exactly where this idea of the one whose name is righteous and faithful and true coming with the blood splattered on his garments is taken directly from Isaiah chapter 63. It's an ancient metaphor used in the ancient world of a conquering warrior who comes off the battlefield immediately after decimating his foes. And the blood on him is not his own, it's those of his enemies. It is the evidence of a massive victory and it's all over him. It's the blood of his enemies, splattered all over his war clothing. But it's not about the blood, you understand. It's about whose blood. It's a one-sided battle, and it was a rout. That's the first prophetic metaphor they would see. The second one they would see is this idea that he describes this beast feast. This is the second image, and he links it to the idea that God's enemies become a feast for scavenger birds and the beasts. It's taken directly from Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 9. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? And by the way, hyenas were known for taking their prey into their lair to eat and leave the skeletons there and the bones. Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. This is taken directly from Jeremiah. So John's readers, being first century Jews, would see this right away and understand where this was coming from. See, in the aftermath of an ancient battle, there was always the question of what to do with all the bodies of the conquered. When a critical battle with high stakes, intense emotion, and hatred has been fought, the victors want to send a very clear message. This is what happens when you come to war against us. This was a very common way to send that message. Leave the bodies of the fallen on the battlefield to rot. The stench would attract scavenger birds and rats and pigs and every other bird and beast that eats dead things, anything imaginable, and they would feast on these corpses for days, weeks. Everyone all around would see and hear and smell. This feast for the scavengers becomes a stark reminder of the victor's power in battle, and it becomes a monument to the extent of how great that victory was. If you were thinking about coming against the victor, you'd have this reminder every day when you woke up, I still smell it. I still see it. I still hear the birds and the beasts feasting. John's readers understood it wasn't about the gore. It was about a connection to these Old Testament prophecies as a promise of what is going to happen to the wicked. Let's look at the spiritual side of this. What is the theology that we should look at today? I love this passage because it describes our conquering king. First of all, I want you to see the battle is set. So Revelation, as you guys know, I've explained to you throughout this series, It depicts various events over and over again from multiple different perspectives, providing us different camera angles on what is going on. We saw this same event that is described in chapter 19. We saw the same event in verses 14 to 20, and we saw it again in chapter 17. This is Armageddon. But this time it's from the perspective of how we will see it. The scene is not about the gore, so don't obsess over that even though it's hard. It's a metaphor for the power of our king and how he only needs his word. 
It's a prophecy of the embarrassing, humiliating defeat of all the forces of darkness that have assembled for their last stand against the Lamb and His redeemed. Heaven's op heaven opens up. We see King Jesus appear in all His glory on a white horse, and we too are dressed in white robes and on white horses of our own, and we follow Jesus as He leads us into that battle against the ultimate collection of all the forces of Satan. The scripture says, we are our white horses and our white robes. We marvel at the one called faithful and true who kept his promise to return for that final battle against evil. And he has a name written, the scripture says, that no one can read except for him. But do you want me to tell you what it is? Would you like me to tell you? You want me to tell you? Too bad. No one knows. I can't tell you the name, so stop asking me. This is our king in all his glory, and he leads us to our final confrontation, our final struggle, the one we know that we have every day. This is our final struggle with evil, with the armies that are under control of Satan. Those two beasts will be there. Do you remember those? We've learned about those two beasts. The first representing every earthly ruler and every earthly government in the history of mankind, all controlled by Satan. And the second beast is there. That's the spirit of Antichrist, the one who deceives the unredeemed to invest all of their time, all of their treasure, all of their hope, all of their excitement, all of their joy in some version of the first beast. They have gathered everything they control. Every tool of Satan... Every ruler, every nation, every economic system, every philosophy, every false religion, every temptation, all of it. It is the greatest gathering of evil forces all in one place, and they have one goal. You know what that is? To prevent what we learned about last week. They want to prevent the marriage feast from happening. They are ready. Church, they are angry. They are motivated, they are confident for the battle, their last stand against the Lamb and His redeemed. So the battle is ready, it's intense, and then it's over with a word. <laughs> you know, here's what happens. Jesus doesn't even let them fire a single shot. He just captures the two generals, the two beasts, and He orders them by His word into the lake of fire. Our Jesus in all his power and all his glory, with just saying a word, captures the dragon's two spiritual generals and he kills them. You know, there's a battle sort of like this, kind of like a metaphor for this in the Old Testament, when David killed the Philistine champion, Goliath, with one rock to the forehead. You know, once that happened, the Philistines were devastated. Before that, they're all talking smack, and Goliath's coming out, show me your champion. I'll take him down. And everybody was afraid. And then David comes out, kills Goliath, and God's people eviscerated the Philistines on that day. Here, it, it's like this, right? The battle's ready to go, Jesus and the demons, and we're behind Jesus, and Satan's got all his forces, and Jesus walks up on his, or rides up on his white horse. Hey, you. Yeah, yeah, you. Beast one and, and beast two. Right there? Party's over. Enough. Into the lake of fire you go. Right now, you're done, boys. 
He doesn't need any nuclear weapons. He doesn't need Black Hawk helicopters. He doesn't need missiles or fighter jets. His word is power enough. You know, John explains to us why his word has this power. In two places he explains it, both connected to the Old Testament. See if you can pick up the connection. In chapter, uh, verse 13 of this passage today, the second half, the name by which he is called is the word of God. That's what he says. That's the name by which Jesus, the king, is called, the word of God. Look what John, who wrote Revelation and then wrote the Gospel of John, says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You ready? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. What made the world? The Word. Now check this out. Just one example. Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It didn't say... God brought together this chemical and that chemical and this gas and that gas, and he went through and did all the math and the... No, he said, hey, son, you're, you're there. Done. So that's the power of his word. And after he orders the two beasts into the lake of fire, next he will ride through what is left of the forces of darkness with the sword of his mouth, his word, slicing through them like a hot knife through butter. By the power of his word, Jesus created the heavens and the earth, and here he defeats the wicked with that same power. The forces of darkness gathered all their power, and Jesus just rides up and simply speaks, and they are all slaughtered. Every spiritual enemy and unredeemed, every lie, every false religion, every sin, every aspect of evil is obliterated with a word. His white garments, it says, are splattered with the blood of the wicked as he makes carnage of what remains of the forces of darkness without beast one and beast two. And we, his army, dressed in white, were following behind him. We remain unspotted by the blood of the wicked. We remain pure and clean. You know how? By the power of the same word. The battle is done. Yes, Shazam. See, good. That's better than amen sometimes. The battle is done. The battle is done and we follow him through the carnage of the wicked. We're riding with him through. The wicked are all around us. We're following our Jesus through the carnage right up to his house, to the door that opens into the banquet hall. That's good theology, isn't it? All right. I want to talk about the comforting power. God's word. This was the sermon preview this week. The day King Jesus destroys all the armies of the wicked using only his word will be an incredible sight to watch. With just his word, Jesus has authority and power over the forces of evil. And in fact, evil fears his word. You know, by the way, in case you think this is something out of left field, we have actually seen this authority of Jesus and his word over the forces of evil before. Just the power of his word. Even before he says anything, they were afraid of what he might say. Remember the man who was possessed by a legion of demons? And Jesus went up, and he was going to order them out. Remember that? So they're sitting right there, and, and they're in the man, and Jesus walks up, and they say, wait a minute. Who are you? Why are you here? 
It's not the appointed day. What appointed day were they talking about? This one. Why are you here? Please don't send us into the abyss, the lake of fire. They thought, wait a minute, this is not supposed to happen until 2023, February, tomorrow. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just I wish, I pray, Jesus. Right? That'd be great. Remember the story in Luke chapter 8? And they begged him not to command them by his word to depart into the abyss. So they bargained with Jesus. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. Tell you what, Jesus, don't throw us in the fire yet. It's not supposed to happen for a while. Can we just go into the herd of pigs? We'd be better off there. So, they, so he gave them permission. I'll allow it. You may go into the pigs. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Just with his word. It's the same power we see in Revelation 19. He didn't have to say anything, and they were quaking in their boots. But on this day, the one we just read about in our passage today, on this day, there will be no herd of pigs. There will be no negotiation. There will be no begging. Judgment day for darkness is here. You know, all week, as I'm writing this, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm praying about it, and I'm making notes, and I'm, I had this scene in my head of this battle with these lines drawn between Jesus, us, then Jesus, between us, and all the forces of Satan, right? I just had this picture in my head over and over. I couldn't stop thinking about it. On one side, we are all on our white horses and our white robes doing what we do. We follow the lamb wherever he goes. What else, what other choice do we have? On the other side, the forces of darkness with their champions, the beasts, confidently mocking us just like Goliath did David. Look at you pathetic sheep on your pretty white horses and your clean white robes following the lamb of God. We have all the armies of the world. We have every weapon, every lie, every religion, every philosophy, every economy. We have all the earthly powers. We are going to turn all your precious white robes red with your own blood. But church, that's not how it plays out. Because with a word, Jesus says, nah, I think the opposite's going to happen today. And it's going to happen right now. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17 no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. You know, a lot of people quote this, no weapon formed against us. And sometimes they use it for political reasons or, you know, sports reasons. I don't know. But this is a prophecy from Isaiah, not about an earthly battle before then. It's about the day King Jesus returns and with just a word destroys every weapon formed against us. Before evil can launch a missile or fire a bullet, our Jesus says, eh, not today, Satan. In fact, never again. With the power of his word, Jesus accomplishes what no human politician or government or weapon ever could. It cleanses the world of wickedness. 
He captures and orders Satan's two beasts, his generals, into the lake of fire, leaving the wicked without any leadership. With just the power of his word, he wipes them out, leaving them to rot where they fall. And as we follow him, we will witness the power of his word, the same power that saved us from our own sinfulness. We follow our king who is covered in the blood of the wicked through the battlefield up to the door of his house. And without hesitation, we see our champion Jesus throw the doors open and we all enter in with him in victory into his banquet hall. And together, we will then join in a chorus of our own powerful words, proclaiming the great and marvelous works of our King. Our victory has come. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord. And it came with just a word, the same word that has saved us from our sins. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Look what John wrote in his first letter. John wrote this. And, I, you know, I know from what I've studied, seems like John wrote 1 John right after Revelation. So he probably had some more stuff he wanted to say, you know, after writing Revelation. Look what he says in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory. That's the Greek word, nikao, Nike. I've taught you guys about that. This is the Nike, the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Well, this passage is telling you what you can have faith in, the power of his word. Do you believe in the power of your Savior's word and his promise to return one day? Look, I'm not asking this in an accusatory way. As I struggle myself living confidently with faith in the victory to come. There are days, we all have them, where, well... <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> but living with the hope and knowledge that Jesus will return with the power of his word is the key to our comfort. This is hope that frees us from obsessing over thinking that we have an ability or anyone else has the ability to fix this world by earthly power or wisdom. Jesus will do that on that day with his word. We realize the world, controlled by the dragon, has no political, sociological, philosophical, or spiritual solution. We don't need to be consumed with trying to make the world righteous because Jesus will do that with his word. We don't need to be obsessed with political retribution, activism, economic equity, or justice for the wicked right now. The only power that will one day set this world right will be the power of God's word. Look, of course, this doesn't mean, though, that we live it as isolationists, isolationist, disengaged from this world, and we never participate in politics or stuff like that. It's not what it's saying. But when our hope is in the power of his word, our focus is on the kingdom of God, we're not obsessed with trying to fix the kingdoms of men. We don't live with a pointless burden of achieving temporary earthly goals. Our passion is for eternal kingdom goals. 
and a beautiful vision in this passage. And what is that word? It is the gospel, which Paul says he is not ashamed of. It, the gospel, the word of God, is the power of God for salvation. And we will tell anyone who has ears to hear this message, the dragon will not win. All it takes is a word from our king. That when Jesus returns, his word will preserve his redeemed and instantly destroy everything evil has built or formed against us. The power of his word will bring us through the battle unspotted and unblemished from the blood of the wicked into his house forever. Until then, we know the power of his word will be our shield. It will be our confidence. It will be our inspiration to be those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Dear Jesus, <clears throat> we often live with this theoretical knowledge that your word is powerful. We know it and we believe it. But sometimes it's really hard to live like it. There's a lot of things yelling that says to us that says, trust in my power, trust in this power, trust in that power, trust in this comfort or, or that security or that hope. Lord, it's going to take a supernatural act on your behalf by the Spirit of God to daily convince us, no, our hope is in the power of your word. Lord, we recognize it's not just a decision we can make one time. It's something that you have to do in us over and over again. And Lord, I pray for those that are here in our church congregation today and those who might be watching online. Lord, I just pray for them today that you, when they are struggling with hope and the power of your word, you would remind them of this picture that you gave John in Revelation 19 of how quickly you will dispatch of all the forces of evil with just a word. Thank you. You've done it before. Recorded for us in the Gospels. Lord, each day make us more willing to abandon the powers of this life to trust in the power for the next. And Lord, as we do that and your word becomes our shield and our confidence and our inspiration, give us the courage to follow you wherever you go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.